Hi everyone, Ben Eisner here. Welcome to another episode of Knitted Heart, where I talk with endlessly curious masters of their craft about their passions, professions, and their shared hope to bring unity, reconciliation, and a reframing of public discourse through their work. Before introducing today's guests, I encourage you to check out the Indigenous Environmental Network at ienearth.org. IEN is an alliance of indigenous peoples whose mission is to protect the sacredness of Earth Mother from contamination and exploitation by strengthening, maintaining, and respecting indigenous teachings and natural laws. Consider donating what you can afford at ienearth.org. My guest today is pigment forager Heidi Gustafson. All I can say is hold on to your butts. This conversation definitely knocked me off mine. Heidi's wholehearted devotion to contemplating our past and activating our future through the fully sensory experience of playing with rocks, as she says it, has so much wisdom to teach us, some of it exhilarating and most of it humbling. The pigment in our rocks and soil whispers living counsel from the hills. From the very ground we walk, excavate, drill, build, and exploit. And in this conversation, you can hear, feel, and taste Heidi's bleeding heart for us to heed the wisdom when the rocks cry out. And with that, I give you a sweet conversation with a sweet spirit, Heidi Gustafson. Hi. Hey, how's it going, Heidi? Good. How are you? I'm so good. Wow. Seriously, Heidi, um, thanks for doing this. I've been really looking forward to this conversation with you. So thanks for your time today. Of course. I'm really excited, too. It's so nice to get to just have a talk with someone, anyone, <laughs> in this time. You know, long conversations are really delightful. Yeah, for sure. I am so with you. I think that's kind of why I've been really digging into this podcast thing, because it's like, wait a second. I get to just have conversations with really interesting people that get me really stoked about things. You know what I mean? So. I know. Yeah, the people you've chosen so far are awesome. I love I love all of the the people that have entered into your stream <laughs> oh thanks yeah do you want to just paint a picture for everyone where you are right now and what you see where you're calling from all that sure yeah I'm in rural northern Washington um, near the Canadian border and I'm yeah. sort of tucked in at the base of this mountain the first mountain of the cascades of this region that starts to go into the volcanic Mount Baker region. So I'm like um, nestled in, in this, I'm actually, I drove from my studio to this local cemetery that has really good reception so I could have this conversation. So I'm staring at this iron laden mountain that's at the base of many, vol of a volcano in a cemetery in wow. the farm fields. <laughs> wow. Sounds yeah. really magical. It's a really sweet spot and it's it's a really beautiful agricultural area too. There's all the raspberries are in bloom. We have one of mm. the largest raspberry cultivations in the country and there's um, just the season is on fire this year because we've had so much rain. So you can imagine mm. there's everything is green, there's fruit blowing up everywhere and it's wow. lots of, yeah. Sounds incredible. So you would call yourself an earth pigment forager. And I wrote down perhaps maybe the baseline task. Your baseline task is aesthetic reception. Can you kind of give me, you know, in a nutshell, what is an, an earth pigment forager? 
Sure, yeah. So earth pigment forager is essentially someone who plays with rocks and mm -hmm. looks for them and then crushes them into powder. Um, pigment just essentially means powder, powdered mm. material. And so foraging earth pigments means a lot like other foraging traditions. You're, you're going out into the landscape or into the urban environment and you're um, feeling into where there are rocks and minerals and soil and clay. So mm. um, earthen material, literally, that you can crush up and utilize for a lot of different purposes and also just to like I said play with um, mm. and the aesthetic reception piece of what I do is it's connected to the history of earth pigments so if you if you don't know or for the for your listeners earth pigments are the oldest material that we have used as a species to create artistic materials that let us leave marks behind, that let us write things, that let us um, express ourselves, and that also mm -hmm. let us cosmetic ourselves. It's our first body paint. It's our earliest, it's just our earliest way of displaying something from the inside out in wow. a really simplistic way. Yeah. And so it allows us to like essentially receive the art of another. Wow. So aesthetic reception, you can kind of see as like what, part of what I'm doing as an earth pigment forager is looking for ways to receive the art of another and allow for that to be, ha to happen more. Wow. Um, and to stay true to that lineage of 300,000 years of human being that is simply like, I want to tell you something that I can't, I don't know how to express and I'm going to use the earth to do that. Wow. <laughs> and that's, so, that, that's that sweet. Sense? Yeah. Tons of sense. And it sounds like there's mm -hmm. something that's activated when you crush it. Yeah, there's, I mean, if you think about it on literal terms, you take something solid and hard, a, a rock, you're breaking it open and it's sort of exposing this in, inner resonance, a, mm. a more like, a, I don't really like the word essence, but I think it's mm. easy to use that word. Um, sure. You're breaking down something, like you're breaking open the heart of something to see its essence. And so mm. you do get that experience of, of, a more potent energy when you break it open and you also have you and a kind of humility and a kind mm. of recognizing of your dominance too that when you crush something you're you're breaking it you're you're transforming it forever and mm. that's what allows you to see the essence of it but it's also you you know that you're changing radically that substance and forever wow. so wow. there's that you know there's a tension of energy where that's specifically also human like we we do that a lot we like to destroy things to get to know what they are hmm. this is a really basic primal way to do that too so and and i've kind of dug a little bit just into your work and i've noticed that it's iron pigments that are your primary focus is iron kind of like that activator element within these minerals that you're working with or is it does it span beyond iron and other fields does that make sense yeah completely yeah i'm my being and my person is completely drawn to and obsessed with the iron in these earth pigments so hmm. it's, it's another way you could say that is that um i'm completely committed to ochres and ochre hmm. is the term within the earth pigment tradition for 
minerals that are dominated by the presence of iron and oxygen. So those are my two main elements that I connect to. But other, um, and they are, and to me, the iron is definitely the energizing and the connective tissue of the minerals for me. But mineral, it's really across the spectrum, the metal element in any rock that seems to have more of the uh, just basic chemical energy. So you can get copper-based rocks, you can have lead-based rocks, mercury-based rocks, and all of those metals are really what defines their color and their energy on a foundational level. Like talk to a chemist, they'll probably tell you something way more complicated and interesting, but <laughs> to me, <laughs> it's, that's, the base, that's the root of it. So there's uh, some people that really connect to copper-based minerals and our pigment workers and they have a connection to that metal and they feel the energy and the power of that that metal and for me it's really the iron yeah i mean this is what i'm just totally it's kind of like blowing my mind after i kind of reviewed a lot of even what you're doing and the whole idea that these pigments are primordial collaborators you know like with us you know what i mean and Mm. our our expressions whether it be in art forms or just you could probably make an argument that everything we touch can center back to these pigments i mean am i like breaking out further than the scope of what you do does it just seems so foundational to how we express ourselves in in history yeah, I, I, there is a real impulse to uh, see this work as very expansive and connective and foundational to our beings and mm-hmm. our expression. And I also like want to, I'm trying to be a little bit more mindful that um, that kind of grandiosity of gesture is my own just like personal obsession on some level mm-hmm. <laughs> that I personally think this is a big deal. And I see it as having a real foundation. But the parts of that that are true for me are the parts that I um, are like looking at the when I when I feel into and look and think about the earth as a whole. um, And I think about the core of the earth being 100 percent iron with like 5 percent nickel. And the mantle of the earth is being this molten iron. And then the surface of the earth containing all of this iron around the planet so it's essentially like an iron rock with an atmosphere of oxygen that's how we experience the earth and to me those two elements again are found in the ochres that we work with that allow us to have creative expression and then on a micro level it's found as an in that same combination iron and oxygen in our blood right so the, the iron in our blood is what allows the oxygen to be delivered around our body and gives us the sense of being alive. So wow. I think, you know, there's this, for me, it's more, of, maybe it's not that it, it, it informs everything or that it's um, dominating everything, but more just that it's a really important connective story about how we can stay connected to ourselves as earth material mm-hmm. and, to the planet which of which we are and be able to remain connected to that through creative practice is really important to me and so if i'm i'm gonna take grand i'll use grandiose moves to do that because i think you know go big or go home 
yeah and also just like common ground in, in the really cliche sense of it because these i these materials are everywhere and they're touched mm -hmm. by everyone like you said yeah. and they they're humble and they're simple yeah. wow yeah i mean this whole idea that i've got this written down that pigments are not lifeless they're mysterious metamorphic <laughs> agents of art made by complex ecologies, biomes, volcanoes, extinct mm. creatures, fault lines, sea floors, swamps, deserts, mm. fertile soils, and dead people. And they're living waste. So it's like, yes. that is our transformation. Like that to me is like, there is story embedded in those rocks. Yes. So yes. this excitement that I just picture of you just breaking and crushing these rocks, it's like you say, it's kind of unlocking our history of past, but also future. I mean, am I like yes, making no. this way too poetic or it just like no, this, these ideas no. totally get me stoked. No, that's, that's exactly what, I mean, that's exactly what is happening. And it's, it's connecting us to these deep time of the past. That's what's essential about mm. these rocks as opposed wow. to biological pigments, for example. So a lot of people work with plants and insects and other pigment producing natural materials but mm. rocks there when you're when you're working with a rock you are working with deep time on several different levels and every rock is carrying a completely different deep time story and oh. also carrying a completely different cultural story and like as in to say how how have cultures in the past worked with this particular place that this rock is coming from how have they connected to this three million year old iron oxide that was made by back to ancient ocean bacteria or something so there, there's the original story that's carried in this material and what it can teach us and then how it's been teaching for the last however long it's been in, in the presence on earth and Jeez. that that to me is um again like one of the main ways we can stay connected to to time spans that are also beyond human beings so not just material that's beyond human being but just being able to think about outside of our limited context mm. that seems really important and exciting and it's it is poetic um but it's also just like pieces of it's just the actual poetry of the earth it's not like it's i'm mm. we're making this up like there are there's every rock has a completely different beautiful lifespan it just is operating Jeez. across cosmic time <laughs> unbelievable it's like really that beautiful. it's so it's beautiful and i i think that the like if you distill it down to it took me a second to connect the dots but it's like wait a second this is sediment like this yes. has been gathering over yes. millions of years or you know however long that that the life of that rock compressed from whatever time and history and people and animals and and civilizations that have tread upon that soil that sediment mm -hmm. is it's us that's crazy yes. stuff yes 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 i know it, it's an exact it's like um you you share your you can yeah you can express yourself through the stuff of other people their bodies literally so their exoskeletons crazy. so like every ex i mean we know this also about across in other traditions too think about coal or oil for example where we know that's like the compressed exoskeletons of the dead and we Ooh. have fun poetic metaphors that we work with but <sighs> but it is like and all um 
so many of our materials are literally that, like you're saying, like we're staying in connection and it helps you reform or reframe the dead mm-hmm. as being deeply living and yeah. we are retaining connection. And even sometimes like forcibly so where you're over extracting, trying to over extract life from something that kind of wants to stay quiet and Ooh. you can reframe our relationship with cycles of life too, I think. And that excites me. Wow, that's really powerful. I see a lot of my episodes kind of converging and dovetailing at certain points. But Mm -hmm. after talking with Sharon Blackie, this mythologist from from Mm -hmm. Ireland, when you look at the mythopoetic and that lens, and then my friend Russell Halsey, who was my first, first episode, he talked mm-hmm. about the uni- universe, the one verse that our existence is the poem of life. Like we are living the myth. Mm-hmm. And so this whole just beautiful kind of everything belongs type of a, of a paradigm for mm-hmm. having more just love, respect, and, and reverence for what the earth holds what we stand on you know and you talk so much about this really beautiful almost contemplative space and time that you enter into when you do your work and you and you approach minerals or rocks can you just kind of talk about the sacred inward space that you you find Mm. yourself entering into Mm. yeah um there's When you're out in land, whether it's, I consider cities land, like wilderness as much as I consider some place deep that no human has touched. I feel like they're all Mm. expressions of um, earth. And Mm. when you're, when you're out in the spaces sort of feeling for these connective stories that are carried by place um the contemplative piece is really staying with how those connections arise across the species in the landscape like the the sediment and the rock are sort of the parent material and they talk about this in geologic terms like these are the you can, can think about them as the parent material and then the plants and the humans and the animals and like the microbiomes of the soil that emerge out of that, um, they, they're, they tell a mutual story. You, once you start to be in a land and you're contemplatively working or just like able to realize that, you see that, like for example, in um, I was just telling this to a friend of mine a couple of days ago, we were up in the high mountains and there's a part of one of these mountains that, has a huge exposure. I call them exposies when things get revealed out of the soil. That has a huge exposie of like ancient marine organisms that have fossilized into ochre or these earth pigments. And they're about 3,000 to 5,000 feet up in this volcanic landscape. So you, you're in what you would consider to be like a high mountain environment and you're seeing ocean creatures But what you also start to notice if you're working in a contemplative, connective way is that all the plants 
that are growing out of these ancient marine organisms look and are called look like and are called coral. So like mm. coral orchids, coral lichen, the form of them still is still retaining the form of the ocean, the feeling of them, the color, wow. the way they move in the landscape. And then the wow. like the way the lichen hangs from the trees looks a lot like the way seaweed moves in the water. And so you start to get this sense that although we think and we've differentiated these biomes and these earth places, they're 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 they've had other lifetimes, they've had other past lives and other stories where they've been other part like this mountain has been ocean and it's still telling us that and it still has a memory of that. Wow. And that's part of what contemplative presence can show you. Hmm. Right? Is that kind of what you're... Yeah, no, it's powerful. You mentioned in, in your essay called Dust to Dust about red ochre's role in art and the indigenous Atsugui of the Northern California region. Why did they, were they so drawn to that red ochre and they, they carried it in that, in that kind of mystical yeah. way? I'm going to speak from my own like white woman perspective coming mm. from like settler traditions and like Norwegian Scandinavian heritage. I, I don't know. I'll never know what, um, what the connection is for any indigenous community. And I, I don't want to speak for them. Um, Red ochre has so much documentation around the world and in, across indigenous communities and in, across um, time cultures that have gone extinct as well and cultures that are still alive. And so what I can speak to is that the reason I picked out that particular image, that, that poetry of carrying red ochre in the heart sack of the deer from that tradition of the Americas was that you see this across traditions, that red mm. ochre, which again is like the purest example of iron and oxygen that, that deeply uh, is like a microcosm of the planet's heart. Mm. Um, they, that it's used in this very sensual heart-centered deeply connective way across cultures and it's revered as a as a substance that can connect you to the heart of the earth and i can speak to that piece that because there's just so much there's just so much evidence of that used everywhere and mm. treated like a, a spiritual being that it is like it's it's treated as if it's still connecting us to the spiritual being of the whole planet. And red ochre, of course, was used, it, it was used as blood in a certain way, or like offering, whenever you're making offerings back to the earth, you're basically offering back the earth's blood to itself when you use red ochre wow. in a ritual, because it's essentially, you even, we even call that mineral hematite, you know, which means, blood bleeding stone like living stone bleeding stone stone of blood and it yeah it's essentially earth's blood material we call the vein you know we mine hematite red ochre from veins of the earth hmm. so that reverence is essentially like the way we revere blood in each other like if someone gets cut you're like i want wow. that i'm gonna like protect you like we see that as a living vibrant active principle in our beings right so the oh, heart right. yeah the heart is a huge piece of it and again like when i'm to go back to the beginning of this conversation when you're breaking open a red ochre it really touches on a lot of those traditions spiritual traditions that say breaking open the heart 
is mm. one of the most important ways that you connect to anything, anyone, wow. and especially entities and non-human wow. beings that we don't know how to connect to with our ordinary modes of communication or perception. And yes. so breaking open the heart, right, is a is an important practice to like have cross-species communication. And that means like if you consider the whole planet Earth as a kind of a species. Yeah. Yeah, if that makes, yeah. No, it makes a ton of sense. You think of the basic idea that we need minerals in our water or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. But that whole concept that like those minerals are what are forming our organs. Can you talk yes. about that? Because when I read okay. some of that, I was like, what in the world? No wonder we need minerals in our water. Yeah. Well, you know, there's oh, there's a great book. Um, I think it's like a thousand years of nonlinear history or something. It's by a philosopher and it's a, it has a great account of the evolution of mineral-based structures for organisms. So you think about mm. our being, we're, yeah. we're scaffolded on a, we all like understand we're on a skeleton, but we, we don't necessarily connect it to like, that is a marble mineral. Like essentially our skeleton is a similar constitution to limestone, to marble, to these other um, exoskeleton-based minerals. So like, I think about the achievement of the human body as being an achievement of mineral. So it's essentially achieved Whoa. this erect mineral that also is mobilized. We're like a walking yes. rock. And in the center of us, you know, so you can, that's, that's a really simple example. And what's left behind yeah. when we die is our mineral piece. The, our skeleton becomes our exoskeleton and it came from a previous exoskeleton. So it's like we go from exoskeleton to skeleton to exoskeleton again. You know, an exoskeleton just is like means protective skeleton, protective material that that keeps, yeah, that keeps your being together. Um, yeah, and so that evolution is super essential to our being. And then, of course, we have much smaller amounts of minerals, like actual minerals in our body. So in our brains, you know, we have magnetite which is an iron oxide also, but in a slightly different form than the hematite. And magnetite in our brains is the same magnetite in birds' beaks that orients us on the planet to the magnetic field. What? So without that piece, yeah, we won't be connected to the magnetic field. But yeah, so do you get um, that sense that like we have minerals in small parts of our body that are connecting us to the larger organism of the earth and then we have we're literally like flimsy floppy juicy mineral like surrounds <laughs> of a mineral skeleton <laughs> like, unreal yeah, see to me that begs the question in my own mind you know as i'm processing transformation and rebirth and yeah. um if you want to use the word reincarnation fine but like the idea that like yeah okay all of this sediment is re creating itself mm -hmm. rebirthing itself it's you know re-harvesting it's re-manifesting life in different forms and and functions but soul energy to me is just like it's like mercury as well so i just mm -hmm. i just have to believe that you can't dualistically separate physical matter sediment and rocks and then all of a sudden energy of of soul right connection you know what i'm saying it's just it's no. a dualistic way to approach it but it's like they mm -hmm. can't be separate you know wouldn't yeah. wouldn't would, what, what do you think about that um, Absolutely. Heidi? i yeah i don't think they can be separated and i i i think part of you know this 
the strategy that I'm taking is that for our time and place, we need to have them together. It was a mm. cool move to separate them, like in the in our past and in our recent past, to try to like differentiate between soul and matter and even like psyche, emotions and materiality, and to really distinct make them distinct as a way yeah. to get to know them, but. I don't think that functioned very well. I I don't think I think it helped to secure capitalism. I think it helped to make commodities possible. You know, like all of these things that yeah. we're now grappling with that are that make us actually suffer and feel like shit. The yep. the that comes from that differentiation. And so for me, I'm like, okay, let's let's get back the sensual connective t- tissue that brings these closer together. And then, like. I, I'm thinking of a really specific example, which I, comes to my mind. Um, and forgive me if this feels a little tangential, but no, I there, love it. There was this like beautiful uh, research done, sort of torturous research done, where they essentially had a spider and a grasshopper in these two different circumstances, and um, in one of them, they had grasshoppers living with these spiders and the spiders are the predator of the grasshopper so the grasshopper lived with these spiders they were like killed like they're normally killed and eaten they didn't have any it was just their normal lifespan in the Hmm. other container they basically taped the mouths of the spiders shut or they like i don't burn them off or did something crazy that humans do so that the grasshoppers lived in much longer amount of fear because the they didn't die in the normal Aww. amount of skin and they were like basically Aww. being tortured by the threat of the spiders and what happened to their body yeah. is that it it its mineral contents changed over time because of its fear it essentially create, created higher levels of i think nitrogen and it created higher levels of um a couple other mineral constitutions i forget what they were exactly and then they buried both of these grasshoppers in soil to see how long it took them to sediment and to decompose and to like enter back into the cycle. And it took the grasshoppers that died in fear, like 200 times longer to sediment down into the soil because actually their beings elements had changed so much. So I feel that's the same with humans. Like right now we're in this phase of like, we have high levels of anxiety, at least in the West, we have high levels of anxiety right now. And also with COVID happening and other things like we're physically changing our mineral bodies and Mm. we're going to be changing the sediment and the rate of that. And it's a, that's to me, that's, that's soul changing the earth, right? That's like our relationship to our own souls and our relationship to our own emotions affects absolutely the capacity for us for future generations to literally grow things out of the soil where we where we you know so i feel like that's yeah. a good example of just like very straightforward people can understand if you die in fear it takes you longer yeah well you know what my wife is a huge fan of dr christian northrup mm-hmm. particularly the book women's bodies women's wisdom she talks about how the whole concept of our bodies keep the score from mm-hmm. fe- anxiety, tension, fear, abuse, trauma, anything, and different levels of that trauma, our body has absorbed that energy based on mm-hmm. the kind of the moment our needs weren't met at a certain point in our life. That's the chakra that that trauma attaches to and we carry it in our bodies. And I just mm-hmm. think about like when I'm stressed, when I'm afraid, when I'm 
whatever. When a a person from my past comes back into my life and I have to face them, like my body feels it. There's Mm -hmm. no way in my mind if I'm carrying that kind of, you know, stress and energy and anxiety, my body, it seems like our bodies have to absorb it. But in terms of how even geologically and that we actually do change history and kind of redeposit that energy back yeah. into the earth. Am I getting like really yeah, out yeah. there? No, no. I think redep- that seems like common sense to me. You're, I mean, you're, we are. We redeposit. <laughs> we're redepositing yeah. our energy in a mineral form. And part yeah. of what part of what I've seen, just to take this to another level of uh, processing emotional trauma stored in the body, psychic trauma. Um, you see this in landform too. So you, there's psychic mm. trauma, cultural trauma stored in the land. So you can uh-huh. think about it again on one scale up that like the way you're talking about it in the body, that's the same for the body of the earth, uh, similar. Uh-huh. I mean, so when I'm in landscapes that have been traumatized, let's say by like uh, colonial psychosis, um, uh-huh. you, you feel that. And you're also like uh-huh. a big part of my work and some of my responsibility is like, I'm going back into these lands which often many of these traumatized lands are ochre laden lands that people, Mm. my ancestors destroyed, not knowing that they had this potent ritual past or like not being willing Mm. to ask about them. And so going back into them, taking some of these stones, working with them and then offering them back to other people, especially people in the West or like literally white people from colonized backgrounds and having them break that material down with me, having them like crush it with a mortar and pestle, like, that's kind of showing their soul how to do that in their own body. It's like, okay, take some of your trauma, crush it down into this powder, create, like, let's just say on the simplistic terms, like make some paint, put it on your body and like show, sensually show and teach your body how to remember how to take, how like heal some of its own trauma through an external process or now chemical process. And, you know, and that's important to me that you're like, we're working with traumatized land to teach our traumatized bodies how to like make creative material out of that wow. and like keep going and right keep going wow yeah. so i think i'm just like thinking through your moments where you can sit with people and like you said apply the pigment and break these rocks open and contemplatively enter into taking their history in the ancestors living in those rocks and in how that affects this earth. I mean, the air they breathe. I mean, to me, that kind of tactile encounter is just, I'm sure you have witnessed a, a lot of beautiful kind of aha moments like, oh, wow, this is bigger than me. I mean, mm-hmm. do you kind of find yourself witnessing those those light bulbs going off firsthand when you're you're working with people? Sure, yeah, and especially um, teaching the foraging traditions where we're like we're so built on extractive modalities. So we, you know, all of our like we we are an extractive society, and a part of what I'm teaching in foraging is like how to reframe our uh, greed for extraction to become something that's more sustainable and more in direct participation with what the land is actually willing to offer 
and what we actually need to, like you're saying, basic needs. So how, yeah. and, and a lot of what I see is, you know, when I teach, um, like, where is it appropriate to extract materials now? Like, what does that look like? Where, where is it um, ethical to participate in these places? And people, when, like, for example, when I show them, like, when we're on a coastal, when you're in a coastal environment and material is shedding off of the cliff and being eaten by the ocean, and it's sort of in this transition between those places, between water and land, and it's, it's slowly eroding, those eroding places are really beautiful and important for our time and place to be working with that material. That's safe. I feel like that's ethical to, to work with. You're not like actually digging holes or raping the earth or doing any of these other traumatizing acts. You're, you're literally taking sheddings from a place. And there's, so there's different ways we can participate in the land. And I feel people get pretty um, inspired by that realization that we don't, have to be working in these um, aggressive modes in order to get our needs met um, yeah. and our, get our expressive uh, materials. Right. <laughs> That's uh, a way, yeah. Yeah, you know um, what you call it? Geological reverie. Mm, yeah, reverie is such an important word for mm. me. Like, it's, yeah. Yeah, it is like that. Yeah, mm. it's... um. This, uh, you know, isn't there something I, I can almost attest to it, Heidi, when you give yourself to space to just take in what's right in front of you. And, you know, I can just envision you doing your work and just letting go and giving yourself up to just the elements and letting them just speak to your subconscious and lead you to a specific riverbank or just a specific pocket that, that you're like, you know what? This deserves some attention and some contemplation and some pondering. Do you, do, do you feel that? I mean, do you experience that reverie, if you will, in your work? Absolutely. And I also want to say that I, because precisely because I experience the human body as a landform itself, also as a place, as a kind of um, landscape, that reverie. This is I'm not sure how to say. Like reverie includes our dreams, our world, oh. our dreams. Like our dreams are the stuff of Earth too. So, like Jeez. for me, it's oh not just about like going to the land and feeling the land and participating there it's like knowing that your dreams are also land in a way and that we're exploring you're in a in that space you're also exploring geologic realms you're exploring ecological realms and i like from in my personal like origin story to coming to this work it was from inner worlds it was from visionings and it was from dreams that led me mm. to my land teachers it wasn't that the land called to me first it was that wow. the dreams were like go find this land and i'm like wow. how so and again that's just repeating the same basic impulse i've been talking about with ochres in general and pig, pigments is that they really are about connecting what we conflate as inner and outer they're they're really about saying like you guys this isn't 
there's not really a big difference. Mm. Your dreams are land, they're participating in land, the land has a dream. It's, it's all like very capable of, of uh, shape-shifting into different experience, way, modes of experience, ways of receiving information. What a great um, word, shape-shifting. Wow. Yeah, shape-shifting. Yeah. Yeah, so. My wife is huge into dreams and she does dream work with people and she always talks mm. about how every single element person color is a an aspect of you a different aspect of yourself you know Mm. but it just so like honestly that just kind of blew my mind to the next (laughs) level with what you said it's like wait a second our Mm. dreams like that can't even live on that dualistic pole of like physical Mm. spiritual emotional subconscious whatever they all live in the same finger-painted canvas (laughs) well and it also just makes it um one of the like one of my favorite lines from this early kind of process philosopher and scientist researcher alfred north whitehead Mm. he he was really adamant about saying that it's all real Mm. so once you take any experience dream a physical experience, a memory, an emotion, like whatever it is, and or like just that the, you you base layer say, okay, I honor that that is real, that experience mm. is valid, and then what? Like, mm. so now what do we do? And by doing that, you open up basically modes of exploration that can that are not um, castrating to experience. Wow. With I think a lot of people to have in the past, I mean, especially with the dreams, like from, for me, I'm like, once you start validating dream as mater- as matter in a way, or mm. more, a part of that pro- process, yeah. then you, you get, you just get to explore more. Yeah. So why, like, <laughs> yeah, and, it's like and, an and, invitation. Yeah. And it's like so simple, but it's, yeah, it's essential. And then you start to, there's so many deeper layers that come from that as, anyone who's worked with a lot of dream worlds know that like they don't um, ever stop. They're like, they're like these crazy blooming ecologies that teach us how to be in deeper participation with what's here. Right. It's yeah. It's, it's endless. It's like this endless as Sharon Blackie talks about a spiral instead of a straight line, it's a spiral. So Mm. for us to, take a quote-unquote dream and say oh wait i need to apply that literally to my life or i need to read this Mm -hmm. sacred text and be like wait a second i need to apply this literally to a linear you know application to how life works it's almost cutting it off at the legs and not allowing it to speak its depth and breadth of what it's begging to tell us about our history and our and who we are you know what i'm saying yeah, completely. Yeah, it's essentially just making us uh, atrophied. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, so futuring soil does that is that? Can you kind of break that down for me a little bit in terms of mm-hmm. it's connected to this term that I've heard you talk about called soil soil forming. What is mm-hmm. what is futuring soil? Yeah. So just um, on a like real technical basis, again, for people that might not be familiar, when when you're breaking down a rock, that's the process of soil forming. So in the landscape, like soil forms from the weathering of minerals, from the acidification of minerals, from essentially minerals becoming crushed up 
and by bigger forces. Okay. And when you're doing it on a small scale, like with a human in a rock crushing pigment, you're creating the creating soil, your soil forming. And so when you think about um, pigment on those terms, where all pigment is a soil, then you real then you kind of it changes how you think about let's say painting, mm. because when you look at paintings, they're essentially soil. They're wow. all made of soil. So you can see like, oh, you're actually fielding, you're, you're making a future field when you're painting something, but you're putting it on a wall so it can't actually interact with biological forces. So you're essentially taking soil and trapping it in an image. Um, and so that's like, uh, so for me, the, when you're saying futuring soil or think, I'm just also another way to say that is like, how do we think with soil where it actually is? Mm. um in our lives like it's wow. it's on our walls it's on our ceilings like Jeez. you know just the gypsum in our drywall and the gesso that's a kind of that when when you when those buildings break down they're creating soil but it's as you know if you're in agriculture like not all soils can produce delicious things some mm. of them become extremely barren mm. and some of them are, are there to capture, like, let's say, um, one of my friends is a researcher on uranium depositional cells, like, how do we keep uh, really toxic or radi radioactive materials held in soil? So some soils are excellent at, like, holding radioactive material, but they're not great for growing food, mm. and vice versa. So there's this, there's, like, and I'm not a soil scientist by any means, and I revere them, and I'm, I'm I think, wow, if I, I wish that we all were taught basic geology and soil science. That would be awesome. Um, but yeah, there's like, again, so just where is soil? Where is and soil? once we do that, then we're, we're starting to think on terms of the future, like futuring what soil can do. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to quote you because I want you to kind of launch into whatever um, sparks your imagination when I say this, <laughs> but uh, you say foraging pigments to me means cultivating relationship with direct mediators of aesthetic response mm -hmm. i know that's I, I i wrote that and i still believe that but there's a part of me that um it's so hard to say what direct is but i can, mm. I can speak to that a little bit more um This is, yeah, that's basically a summary line of, I think, a lot of the things we've been talking about, where yeah. the way that we interact with pigment, which is soil, which is futuring the sedimentation of our traumas, which is um, creating the color for our paints and for our expression. When, when we recognize that pigment has all of those capacities, yeah. And that it literally mediates our relationship with our ecologies and our bodies. Mm. Um, that and that that is the core of art practice. Like mm. you cannot get art practice without that. You don't you don't get you don't get the history of art without pigment as soil, as land, as place, as traumatized, as this, uh, you know, like as as related to indigenous cultures. You don't get the, that doesn't happen so then wow. you recognize that like there there isn't a different be, difference between soil and art there isn't a difference between like shitting and art there isn't a difference between dreaming and so that allow what essentially that does is like the same 
move that like it's all aesthetic experience uh, everything we're doing is essentially art practice and when practice. you do that then like it just makes for me it gives me a lot more freedom that my life doesn't again have to follow this linear trajectory and or some cultural set of ethics but it's it's a, about aesthetic practice and like how do we uh, want to evolve our uh, beings our soil and our land based on the principles of aesthetics and art like what do we want it to feel like how can we make it more beautiful what is it how does it become more sensual and how do we like mm -hmm. work on those terms as our primary foundation for existing yes. right does that maybe that's kind of where that quote is trying to go like yeah it kind of informs our philosophy and our art and even witchcraft for in, in certain exactly. ways you know what i mean yeah well i mean i think that's basically building the sensual and aesthetic organs of perception that allow one to even experience land as having energy and and or like a past and mm -hmm. being therefore alive right um, you that's a that's like so my work is a lot about just teaching how to have that basic organ of perception available again to one because we have that, but it's gone unconscious. You know, when we're in a traumatized land, we feel that in our body, but it doesn't register. Right. So it's about helping it register. And yeah. when that happens, I feel like um, we do fit. You, you have to face like a lot of what also I think the Black Lives Matter movement is asking for is like you have to face the reality of the trauma that our yeah. lineage has brought us to. Yes. And the way that we have violently enacted the extraction of material, the way that we have violently um, lost wisdom, access to wisdom beings, like relationship to wisdom beings through land and individual people that wow. especially um, custodians and land keepers who, who were protectors and had long-standing multi-generational relationships with place so that wow. the wisdom being of that place was like had voices to talk like it was connected and we killed not only the translational voice but the original voice and so when you wow. go into that land we we face those things and we like learn how to we we like get more humble we we feel like shameful and then we try to learn better how to amplify the land again and amplify the voices that have custodial connection to those lands and we we there's just a long again like we have a multi-generational future ahead of doing that work and we don't know what that's going to look like and we're also like yeah i don't know i think it's just little by little as much little. as whatever each in our own capacity can do mm -hmm. right yeah um, what i talk about with sharon blackie about the so much more in a post hero's journey that's more spiraling out into uh, opening arms to include more instead of the hero's journey with which is this like narrow linear story yeah. of the strong white man was wielding yes. the sword climbing the hill and claiming his land you know it's like wow that that's so limited but i have to want to believe that all of this happening is working towards the so much more for deeper transformation deeper enlightenment and really uh maybe a humility to just embrace and love those who don't look like us and maybe learn something deeper about who we are by by facing that you know yeah i, I can't i the hero, hero's journey model is um so disgraceful to me and really uncomfortable and yes it's completely 
um, you know, part of why we have a megalomaniac in office right now yes. in the West. It's like yes. megalomaniacalism like that's just it's like the madness of the hero's journey. It really is the madness of the hero's journey and if you yeah. really want to break down what the model of, you know, how we got here it literally is linear. It's so simplistically excluding so much more of where our development could go. It's still based on a beginning, middle, and end. Well, it's like we're, we're coming to a new land. We're going to set up a new empire, and we're going to get as big and as strong and as rich and as powerful as we possibly can. And this is what it's led to. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like Sharon Blackie talks about how that's the trickster archetype that's just turning the mirror back on ourselves saying, well, you asked for it. Is this what you wanted? <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jeez. Well, and I feel um, I've learned a lot about how to dismantle that narrative from the geologic world because Ooh. we, you, a lot of us, think also geology happens on a linear in a mm. linear way and that things always it's always like oh geologic time is so slow you know things happen over millions of years and like we can't really comprehend that but that's not at all how geologic systems work they don't they don't work in that uh <laughs> expansive linear time that white mind work in they actually have we have <laughs> explosive events that change the face of the earth in like 30 seconds Jeez. forever and we forever. have ex- and so geologic time is pluralistic time and Mm. is is operating on all kinds of time scales at once and i think that's where i don't think it's that the linear model is wrong it's that it's the only model and that Mm. we work it's that it it exists but it's like only one of several ways like we live in a trans like our planet is deeply trans across all kinds of things it's made of multiple kinds of time it's made of multiple kinds of energies it's made of multiple kinds of beings like it's just as pluralistic as you can get and when you try to narrow it down to one thing like the linear model you you completely uh disconnect from all the other ways that are also simultaneously possible and happening and being open to all of that right so i think just pluralizing how we experience time is like just saying there's linear and there's spiral that's cool let's start let's do that and also there's like weird explosive nano time that just shows up for like a second and then disappears disappears. and you can't ever find it again you know or whatever yeah so Uh, that's really powerful pluralization of experience i think a lot yeah it sounds so much more fun (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) yeah no kidding it is fun so Heidi, why don't you um, tell me specifically what you're putting your hands to this very moment and what's just lighting you up specifically in your work? Mm. I just got back from a week of field work in eastern Oregon, and I was in this landscape full of... um, pretty old paleo soils, which used to be um, ancient swamps that have all dried out and they're made of all these different colors, but largely made of different kinds of iron. And um, I 
I've been working, I worked in that place for about a week with my love and we came back and I, I have those materials in my studio sort of mm. um, meeting all the other ochres I have in my material. You can, in my studio, you can imagine I have this uh, room full of like thousands of colorful rocks and dirt and they, mm. I consider them my, you know, my teaching council. And so when I bring a material back, I'm putting them in relationship and sort of they're so they're hanging out and that's what I've, I've got my hands on this oh, deep Eastern Oregon place that I'm going to learn from and see what opens up and how it wants to connect to the other ochres in in my space. And yeah, I've got these like little tiny blue potato bugs that I brought back the exoskeletons of these blue potato bugs that are like blowing my mind because I never knew that potato bugs have gills. They're, they're sea creatures that live on land. They're like the only sea creature in the world what? that lives on land. And they they pee out of their exoskeleton. They like they're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, so I'm just looking at they they live in this ochre landscape that I was in and they like love this big red mountain. And I was like, why do these little blue potato sea creatures love this old ancient swamp? I gotta figure this out. So I'm playing mm. with them too. <laughs> There's it's pretty fun. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I can I can imagine Heidi just like the the picture you painted for me to just picture your studio with all these different colors of rocks that you've foraged over the years mm-hmm. that I just imagine this moment of reverence the sacred mm-hmm. moment of reverence just even crossing that threshold into your office and I know you do it every day mm-hmm. so it's like you probably doesn't hit you every time just because you're doing you you're doing life but mm-hmm. just that whole um, kind of idea in my mind of of just crossing that threshold with this open heartedness and, and reverence and just asking for what's in those rocks to speak, you know? Does, yeah. Uh, it's, I've, one, of my, um, one of the things my love said to me once, he's like, when I enter into your studio, it's like entering you. And, I'm, and I have to always... I for I do forget but then when I enter in there for me it is a very spiritual sacred space and and I envision it becoming uh, um that kind of a space for others long term where like mm. it's more of a sanctuary space it's more of a place of worship wow. um but I yeah I, some most of the days I remember that and then some days I'm like just in my own my own ner- neurosis I'm like I'm sitting by myself <laughs> blah, 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 blah. <laughs> oh. Cast that dream in your in your heart in terms of where this is going for you. Cast that dream of you putting your time and energy into that sanctuary, that spiritual sanctuary mm-hmm. that you have in, in your studio. Talk about what it's unto. Like, you know, where where do you feel this is compelling you forward in terms of whatever yeah. you put your time to or just in terms of your vocation if you will you know and mm-hmm. and when your deepest wish is fulfilled like yeah that's <laughs> what I'm working towards you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. um, I think it's really close to what I was saying it's a, it's essentially like my my work and my calling and the effort I make is essentially an offering back to ochre and mm-hmm. and specifically Every time I bring an ochre in, I'm offering it back to ochre itself, mm. which to me is like offering it back to the heart of the earth and saying, like, I want to be with you. I want to learn better how to evolve our organs of perception or, and, and how ochre can participate in that. And then for me, like my deepest heart place is, is 
making, I have this pretty strong sense of this architectural space that's a columbarium, which is essentially like a place where you have all these niches um, where you put the, the ashes of the dead in. Mm. And I kind of think about this space as like people would enter into this sanctuary that is architecturally designed like a columbarium, but it's made entirely of all these ochres from all over the world that different people have shared with me from sacred places, from traumatized places, from their own backyards. And just you enter into this space, you don't say anything. I don't teach you anything. There isn't anything to be said, but the ochres mm. just give you, like you just are in the presence wow. of these, this set, this diversity of earth's heart material expressed, expressed and, and you leave. And like, you don't, wow. you know, there's just this sense that it's like, seeing um, a really important tree that you love or just a one song that you listen to over and over again or that one icon painting of that you worship it's just for me that would be the ideals like i i leave they're left alone they're in communion you go and be in the presence and that's that wow um, and for me that feels so important that like that's enough wow for a human being that's that's amazing so i just like pictured this like primordial geological guru zendo type of uh (laughs) space you know it's just like a it'll it would just look like a um a a rock rainbow really (laughs) it sounds it sounds so childlike and in many ways it is it's just like here's a rainbow of the earth's heart and that the end (laughs) <laughs> the simplicity of wonder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the unknown. Like I don't, you know, because because I've come to this work through a guide, guide a guided guided visions and through dreams. And I like I don't I'm not given all the information and I don't need to know all the reasons mm. why I'm doing this work. And I know what the forms look like. I know that I have to keep doing this work and communicating aspects of it, not all of it. And that's, to me, that's also a net, like we, we don't have to know what we're doing some of the time, or at least I have the privilege that I don't need to know. Yeah. And I really value that. And I, I value the slowness and the, the time, like the ripeness of timing where Ooh. Ochre doesn't have to tell me what I'm doing it on for. Wow. That is so powerful. Trust the slow mm-hmm. path. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of this author named uh, Martin Shaw and he's a, mm-hmm. he's like a survival guide, rites of passage guide in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. And he, he's this beautiful mythologist storyteller, but he just talks about be leery of the fast route, be leery mm-hmm. of that route that will get you there quickly. It's like, wow. Yeah. And I think like in tandem to that, I often think um, there's an in other, another, um, kind of uncivilized movement in the UK where one of their mantras is uh, it's time it's the time to look down Hmm. and I feel like that's another one it's like we're so we have such a transcendent based culture that's part of the hero's journey that's part of the Christian mythos and Hmm. part of a lot of our um, Abrahamic western religions is like look up transcend and so a lot of like a more it's not only slow down but look down wow be like literally crawl crawl like get down get down (laughs) 
wow the downward it's the downward Mm -hmm. spiral instead of the upward Mm -hmm. upward climb that's Mm -hmm. downward trajectory of uh ascension really you know almost like a paradoxical ascension into Mm -hmm. enlightenment you know and Mm -hmm. ah that's uh that's Mm -hmm. much needed i think so do you uh just want to speak as we close just how you see your work as activism? I I feel that there's this very subtle activism. It's a different kind of activism than a kind of public, loud activism. It's the kind that's trying to shift our attention to mm. become smaller. Mm. <laughs> And more sensual. And I think that this that that has to be done alongside other kinds of activism that are like asking for louder, faster change. And I'm kind of on this activism time scale of like how do we make the human and the human psychosis and impulse for expansion, especially in the right mind, become smaller. Wow. And then how do we use our sensuality to open us up to other beings? So wow. the, the, for me, the activism is about that. It's like humility and sensuality wow. are the key tenets, I think. Um, yeah. And also that, again, like that, like playing with rocks in your backyard is enough of a good human. Like that is being a human, a totally creative mind-blowing human is like mm. you can crush rocks and that's that's like <laughs> that's you know, enough that's enough and yeah that is a lot and you know how much it opens and how much it can teach you about the, where you are situated the context that you're in like i i don't do anything else i just play with rocks and i crush them wow. and i hang out with them right and uh. i think that 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 as a model is also activism like wow that I, that my lifestyle as an art practice that's so simple is help i think it just like helps counteract that um accomplishment driven like model that we're used to i think or that we've been taught is better it's making room it's it's making room Mm -hmm. i'm inspired that you are continuing to do what you're doing and lots of people are interested in what you're doing so i hope that Mm -hmm. this conversation um, is just another seed planted to to get more people to pay attention to what you're doing and be inspired by what you're doing, Heidi. It's really, really, really powerful stuff. Thank you. And likewise, I feel that, you know, if you're in your connective way, bringing these vo- different voices that are trying to create alternative ways of being here that are fun, like inspiring and functional. <laughs> mm. and, and I really appreciate that. And I, I think it's also amazing that you're finding ways to do that. We need like more places where diverse voices connect. Oh, thank you. Yeah, of course. That means a lot to me. Well, Heidi, I will um, definitely be in touch with you and I'll I'll send you a link to to listen to what we put out there. And I'm just so thankful for for this conversation. And yeah, we'll we'll definitely be in touch. Yeah, and thank you for your for your deep attention and reflection. I mm. it's really cool for me to experience too. So, yeah. oh, 
That means a lot. It's hard for me to look at anything as just like this uh, in a myopic end in and of <laughs> itself. It's just like, nah, there's yeah. there's a lot going on in there. And we let's mm. mine this and mm. get it out there, you know? So I'm stoked. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. All well, right, I hope, Heidi. I hope we get to talk again. For sure. And I really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, you. peace to you and yours. Yeah, much blessing and hands on the earth. Uh, <laughs> love it. All right. All right. Ciao Bye-bye. Ciao. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. For more information on Heidi's work, visit her website at earlyfutures.com. If this conversation moved you, consider visiting the Indigenous Environmental Network at ienearth.org. Protecting, repairing, investing, and transforming into a sustainable future wherein Indigenous sovereignty and values are front and center. Visit ienearth.org and donate what you can afford. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and share with your friends. Peace to you until then, and bye-bye for now.